I will do my best to live up to that introduction. Um, if you're wondering, the correct answer is the Crystal Diner. <laughs> route one, business route one in Trenton. I think, I'm pretty sure it's still there. Uh, the best uh, bottomless coffee and the surliest waitresses in all of New Jersey. All right, our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. It's the entire chapter, and this is from the NRSV. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he got up and fled for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And at that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they're seeking my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu son of Nimshi as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha son of Shaphat of Abel Mahalulah as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, as we look at this passage, may it be more than dead words on a page to us. May it come alive in us. May we find ourselves in this story. May it be our story, and may we go live it out. May we know that you are with us, even in the days when we are despondent and in despair. For you are a good God who loves us through everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, like Becca said, uh, my name's Gary Alloway. I grew up right here at Paoli Press. Once upon a time, I sat in those pews and filled in all the letters on the bulletin, you know, to keep myself busy during the sermon. And I'm pastor and church planner of Redemption Church of Bristol. And we, like Becca said, we are a holistic outreach to the town of Bristolboro. Um, now, how many of you have been to Bristolboro? Okay, a couple of you. Um, Bristolboro is a, it's a beautiful, historic, small town. It's nestled right on the Delaware River. It's been there since 1681. We have all these old historic towns. We have this beautiful main street that opens up right to the Delaware River. It's a beautiful spot. And Bristol, uh, but when we showed up in Bristol first in 2009, it was, it was kind of a mess. Um, Bristol had been Main Street USA in the 1950s, and then they built the suburbs, and then they built the malls, and Main Street collapsed. And when we got there, about half the storefronts were empty. And Bristol had been kind of the, the industrial heartbeat of Bucks County and that part of the Philadelphia region. And then, like a lot of places, the heavy industry disappeared, and the town sort of collapsed. And when we first got there, half the storefronts were empty. The population had been in decline for six decades. Almost all the churches were either declining or dying, and I always say there was just this like deep depression and defeatism that kind of sat on Bristol. You'd, you'd walk around and say, what could we do here? And people would just say, yeah, this town used to be great. Oh, we tried that already, and it didn't work. So that was the Bristol we walked into, and yet I always say from day one I could see it. I could see this town coming back to life. I could see this main street being filled up with life and energy. I could see the churches being filled up again. I could see life returning to Bristol, almost like Ezekiel's vision where he sees the flesh coming back on the dry bones. I could see Bristol being resurrected by God. And so, being the idiot that I am, I decided to church plant there. And we church planted there in 2009, not just for the sake of having another church, but for the sake of just kind of investing in the entire life of Bristol, for being part of the town, for helping Main Street come back to life, for overcoming the sense of defeat and death, and, and being part of God bringing new life into Bristolboro. And 12 years later, we, we have some pretty awesome stories of the things that God has done in Bristol. Bristol has indeed come back to life. You can walk up and down the main street and the shops have filled up and there's life and there's energy. And we've gotten to help start a coffee shop and launch a First Friday festival and just see life come back to Bristol Borough. We personally have helped dozens of young people find Bristol and buy houses there and move in and have babies and make this their home, make this the place where they live, where they love, where they serve, where they act as disciples of Jesus, trying to look and smell like Jesus and all they do. We've been able to do meaningful work with the poor in Bristol, helping start a nonprofit to house homeless men. But more than that, being a local community where the poor, the lost, the lonely can come in and take part. 
One thing we always say is we don't, have, we don't have any clients at Redemption. We only have brothers and sisters. And some of my favorite brothers and sisters have been the poor, the homeless, the lost who have come and taken part in this community that we have together. And amongst millennials and Gen Z, the secular generations, right, those leaving the church, it's been awesome to be able to be right in the middle of town and connect with those folks and discover that God's is still working with them and help them connect back into the story of God and learn the ways that the church needs to adapt and grow for the next generation. And more than anything, we've been able to build an incarnational community of people trying to look and smell like Jesus who are invested in every aspect of life in Bristol. And it's my great hope that if we had to leave tomorrow, that would continue on, that the the presence of Christ would just be in every aspect of Bristol At our 10-year anniversary, one of my favorite things is one of our old students came back and said, I walked around Bristol today, and everywhere I went, I ran into somebody from Redemption. If you guys, if we're supposed to be the the salt of the earth, you guys are like the salt on the French fries of Bristol. And I just always love that imagery. So these are the things that have gone well in Bristol. And, you know, I'm here as a mission partner today, so I'm supposed to tell you all, like, the happy success stories And I could talk about any of these things for hours. And yet, for whatever reason, uh, I chose to speak on Elijah. Um, You all are in your series on peaks and valleys, and and Becca showed me all the passages that you guys were doing this summer. And I I quickly chose Elijah because I love this passage. And then I was preparing this week, and I was like, oh, why did I pick the, like, depressing passage where the, where the, you know, the, the prophet has this like mental breakdown in the middle and asks for God to kill him. But the reality is anyone who sets out to do anything for the kingdom of God will have these moments. Maybe you can relate to this. You will have these Elijah moments where you set out and you're like, this is going to be amazing. We're going to see God do amazing things. And then you feel abandoned by God. Moments where you feel alone. Moments where you say, God, why'd you send me to do this thing only to see it fail? Maybe you've had a moment like that. And if so, this is the story of 1 Kings 19. Do you all know this story? This is one of those, even if you, if you aren't, don't know First Kings super well, maybe you, you've uh, heard this story before. It's one of the more famous ones. To get a little context on it, we do need to back up a little bit. Um, actually, let's back up a lot. We'll go all the way back to Abraham. God has called a special people. He's called Israel, and he says they're supposed to be different. They are supposed to be the light of the world. They are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. People are supposed to be able to look at the kingdom of Israel and see the kingdom of God. Not just in their worship of God, but how they treat one another, how they care for the poor, how they care for their neighbor. They are supposed to be different. And for a time, it looks like it it might be going pretty good under like Moses and Joshua, but if you read the book of Judges, it kind of turns into a mess. That'd be understating the book of Judges. And then for a time, it looks pretty good under like David and Solomon. And then the nation splits in half and everything kind of falls apart again. And most of Israel starts falling Baal instead of Yahweh. And by the time we get to our story, we get to King Ahab. And Ahab marries a Canaanite princess named Jezebel, who actively is killing the prophets of the Lord. 
And it's not just a religious thing, right? As Israel turns away from God, they oppress the poor, the rulers become corrupt, the strong steal from the weak, and basically Israel becomes just like everyone else. There's no difference between Israel and every other kingdom. And this is where Elijah shows up. This is where God calls Elijah. He's the one called to stand in the breach. He's the one called into this kind of low ebb to be the voice of the Lord in this place. He's the one who gets this unenviable task to call Israel back to God and bring justice to the nation of Israel. And so when he's called, the first thing he does is says that Israel is under God's judgment. It needs to change. And then he immediately has to go into hiding because his life is on the line. And for three years, he's in hiding. And then suddenly he reappears. And we have the famous story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Maybe you guys know this one. There's the standoff with the prophets of Baal, whose altar is going to light on fire. The prophets of Baal march all day long and nothing happens. And then Elijah gets down on one knee and prays to God. And his altar is burned up. And the people see it. They see it, right? They have this moment where all of a sudden people turn away from Baal and they declare, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I can only imagine what Elijah felt in that moment that all this suffering was worth it. He gets in his chariot and says he races to Jezreel, which is where Ahab and Jezebel were. And he's probably expecting to see the reign of Ahab and Jezebel fall to see the kingdom of God come. And instead, what happens? He gets there, and there's a message from Jezebel saying that if I find you, you're dead. And in fact, if it's on me, you're not going to make it through today. And Elijah panics, and he flees, and he basically has a mental breakdown. Verses 4 and 5 of our our passage say that Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. And when he wakes up, this is what Elijah says to God. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Elijah's complaint is that he's alone. He's the only one trying to follow God. He's the only one trying to do right. He's the only one that is speaking up. And in this, he feels that God has abandoned him. That's actually the language he uses about zeal. He's basically saying, God, you haven't held up your end of the deal. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had those Elijah moments in your life where you feel like it's just you grinding, trying to do what's right, and it's not going anywhere. And you're like, God, what's up? What's the deal? You might not believe this, but every church planner kind of thinks they're a superhero. They kind of think they're going to swoop in and solve all the problems and plant a megachurch and everything's going to just go amazing and everybody's going to realize how awesome they are and how much they've been waiting for you to show up. And believe it or not, that's not actually how it works. 
When you try and church plant, you, you immediately find out how inadequate and how immature and how not up to this task you are and how much your ego is actually going to have to die in order to lead people to know Jesus. And when you church plant in a dying, post-industrial, cynical East Coast town, believe it or not, the results don't come as quickly as you expected. You quickly find no one was waiting for you. You know, they weren't saying, oh man, I can't wait till Gary gets here. Then we'll really turn Bristol around. And when you church plant, you also realize the people are petty and they'll abandon you when you think you need them most and you will feel alone. So like Elijah, I've had these moments where you're like, God, what's the deal? Where are you? Why have you left me alone in this? Why did you send me here just to have things fail? But Elijah brings his complaints to God. He breaks down towards God, which is actually a big deal. There's a big deal between like breaking down away from God and breaking down towards God. He breaks down towards God. And what happens? God meets him in that place. God meets him in the breakdown. God gives him rest. God promises that he is not alone. God promises that he is with Elijah no matter what. God meets Elijah in the breakdown, and after that, Elijah is able to get up and keep going and serve the Lord. So real quick, I want to just look at God's response to Elijah because it, it helps us understand how God meets us in these spaces. So the first thing that happens to Elijah in the wilderness is what? He sleeps. It's interesting, right? First thing he does is, is like sleep for a whole day. Then the angel brings him some food, and then he sleeps some more. Did you know that Sabbath is actually one of the Ten Commandments? So apparently, like, not killing anyone and taking a day off actually kind of exist on the same level in some way. And it's not just because we physically need rest. Sabbath is actually a radical act of faith. You think about it in its original context. It's the idea that God can do more with our six days than we can do with our seven. It's a way of saying the results are actually up to God. If I will work as hard as I can, but I actually take time off in order to remember that this is God's, that this is God's work, that God is the one who brings the harvest. And so part of what we do when we allow God to put us to sleep, when we allow ourselves to rest in that place of burnout, is saying, God, this is yours, releasing the results to God. Pope John Twenty-Third, apparently at the end of every night after he'd worked all day and heard all the problems of the world, would say a prayer, something along these lines. He would say, I've done my best I could do in your service this day, O Lord. It's your church. Take care of it. I'm going to bed. I love that prayer. You can try that on sometime. It's your church, Lord. I'm going to bed. Or whatever it is that you're carrying, whatever burden you're carrying, whether it's, you need to say it's your family, it's your country, whatever it is, whatever is just weighing you down, that's that prayer. It's yours, Lord. I need to sleep. Sleep is a way of releasing the results to God. It is God's job to restore Israel, ultimately, not Elijah's. It's God's job to grow the church in Bristol, not mine. And it's God's job to deal with whatever we're, we're carrying. It's God's job to deal with secularism. It's God's job to deal with injustice. It's God's job to deal with my neighbor who is obviously a sinner. 
It's not that we don't take part in this, right? It's not that we don't have a role, but ultimately we say, it's, it's yours, Lord. It's yours, Lord. I'm your faithful servant, but this is yours. So if you're struggling, if you're in that place where you just feel like you're grinding, I invite you to like take a nap this afternoon. Take a day off. Grab a snack. And in that, let it go. Say, God, this is yours. This will only flourish if you come. And when you wake up, you'll be ready to serve again. And after Elijah wakes up, he travels 40 days into the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and there God continues to speak to him. Elijah repeats his complaint that he is alone, and this is what God says to him. He says, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram, and you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of should have worked on pronouncing this one before I came. Abel Mehol, you got it. As prophet in your place. These names might not mean anything to you, but Jehu and Haziel are the two future kings who actually take down the house of Ahab. Um, so basically what God's saying is like, no, actually the next guys are going to do this thing that you think. And Elisha is, is Elijah's spiritual successor. He's the one who will carry on this prophetic ministry of bringing uh, Israel back to God. So this is kind of God's way of saying like, hey, it's not actually on you, dum-dum. Believe it or not, I actually have other people. You're not the only one who can do this. Which is always what we feel in those Elijah moments, right? Like, why is this all on me? God continues, you may feel alone, but I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, you're not alone in this. This might be very comforting. It also might be a blow to our ego that we're not that special. Sometimes when we get in that place of it's all in me, sometimes that's a self-righteousness. Sometimes that actually feeds like a nice victimhood mentality, right? Where it's like, ah, oh, everyone puts everything on me and allows us just to feel sorry for ourselves. But, but God is saying, no, no, it's not all on you. I have others. I have others who are in this. I have others. In fact, I don't just have successors for you. I have 7,000 on the bench who are ready to go. So I invite you into that place where you're feeling like, ah, oh, it's all on me all the time to, to hear this passage that no, God actually has others. God has others all around you. You might not see them, but God actually is doing okay. Jesus isn't worried. He actually has 7,000 ready to go for whatever he needs to do. So into that Elijah moment, he says, it's not all on you. And lastly, God tells Elijah, not only uh, is this my burden to carry, and not only will I give you others to walk with you, but believe it or not, I've not abandoned you. I've been next to you this entire time. You're just looking in all the wrong places. This is probably the most famous part of our story. Elijah makes it to Mount Sinai, and God tells Elijah he's going to pass by. And Elijah goes out to see God, and there's the great wind, but the Lord is not in the wind. And there's a great earthquake, 
but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And there's a great fire, but the Lord is not in the, in the fire. And then there is the still, small whisper. And there is God. When we get in this mode, right, this mode of, God, where are you? We're usually bitter that God is not doing more, that the results aren't there, that the project's not going how we like. But God seems to say to Elijah, you want fireworks? Fireworks are not a problem for me. But I'm actually bigger than that. And whether you succeed or fail, whether your project is amazing or it completely falls apart, I will still be here, standing next to you, walking next to you, in it, through it all. I am the Lord your God. I will walk with you through everything. We are stuck looking for the fireworks. If we are fixated on the results, I invite us to reconnect to a God that's bigger than all of that, bigger than any of our projects, bigger than any of our ambitions. The God who says, even if all that falls apart, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Amen? If you have time, sit and remember the still small whisper of God who is with you in all things. Amen. So like I said, no church planner gets by without a few of these Elijah moments. Probably my biggest one came three years into ministry there. We had planted in 2009, and for the first couple years, it was kind of up and down, and you were kind of finding traction, and you're making connections in Bristol, and, um, you know, we grew a little bit from 20 up to like 35 people, and it seemed like things were headed in the right direction. And then in the span of three weeks, it kind of all fell apart. Two of our families let me know that they were moving away. A bunch of our college students graduated, and we were doing this really meaningful work with this homeless community that suddenly got evicted and scattered, and most of them we lost connection with. And all of a sudden, we had 12 people in the room, less than we had started with. And more than that, I was exhausted, right? He's just been working so hard for three years, and this is what we had to show for it, 12 people. And that night, Susan and I drove home from church, and we sat in my car on Doran Street in Bristol, and I basically said, something doesn't need to change. I think, if something doesn't change, I think we're done. And I just started praying, God, I need you to do something. God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to do something. God, I need you to show up. And it took a while, right? This is not the sort of prayer you just pray once and walk away. You have to sit in it. God, I need you to do something. God, I need you to show up. But as we stayed in that prayer, something changed.
there was this release, right? God, this is yours, not mine. I can't do it. Clearly, we've seen that. I can't do this. This has to be yours. If this is going to succeed, it has to be yours. And there was actually this kind of funny Jehu Hazael Elisha moment. The next Sunday, uh, this random guy uh, stopped by to buy my dryer off Craigslist, and he ended up joining the church for the next seven years, Um, which is a time-honored church recruitment strategy, sell your things on Craigslist. But it was God's way of saying, like, no, 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 I got you. Same way. It's like, no, you don't see it. But anytime I want, there are people all around you who are in this with you. You are not alone. And more than anything, on the other side of the tantrum, there was God. In the still small whisper, peacefully walking next to me, taking care of my soul, saying, even if this whole thing collapsed, it will be okay. We will be okay. Everything will be okay. I am bigger than all of it. I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And in freedom and in joy and in peace, we got back up the next day, like Elijah, and got back to work. And nine years later, here we are. Amen? Amen. So I invite you for our morning prayer time just to think about where you find yourself in this story. Where are you, Elijah? Where are you feeling burned out? Where do you feel like you're spinning your wheels? Where do you feel like it's all on you? Where do you feel like maybe God has let you down, hasn't held up his end of the deal? I invite you to take a minute to give your complaints to God. You don't have to be polite about it. There's some actually wonderful stories in the Bible of people having big, messy, vomity tantrums before God, and God seems to say, thank you. Thanks for finally saying that out loud. I I know that. I know that's what you're going through. Thank you for giving it to me, finally. And if you persist in this prayer, I do believe God will meet you there and give you rest and give you friends and coworkers and most importantly, give you himself. So without further ado, I invite us to just take a minute to give our complaints to God and we'll close with the Lord's Prayer. And I invite you to pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I hope you share with me the gratitude I feel for Gary, for the ministry you have done over these last 12 years, for the gift it has been to partner with you in it, and uh, the gift it has been to be able to fill that table and more with food and uh, 
plates and forks and knives and things that they can have parties and barbecues with their friends who are experiencing homelessness. That's been under the direction of Dave, uh, our Director of Adult Discipleship and Missions. So I'm going to invite him forward and invite Susan as well, Gary's wife. Um, we've been blessed to hear from you today, and we want to bless you not only with food, uh, but to be able to pray with you and for you for God's continued leadership in your ministry in Bristol. So I'm going to invite Dave to pray. Hey, guys. Um, I'm David Bruner. I'm the director of mission here at Paley Presbyterian. Um, and one of the most fun parts of my job is getting to meet our mission partners and getting to pray with them and for them. Um, and it is always such an enormous blessing to hear about how God is at work through them. Um, and that's something you need to know, that this church um, partners with God all over our area and all across the world to uh, support the work of God near and far. Um, and it's especially exciting to pray with you guys this morning. Um, I've known you both for a long time, and we really see God at work in your ministry, and we are thankful for that. Um, did you have a chance to see all that stuff out there? It's hard yes. to miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, and thank you guys so much. Uh, like I said, we, we don't have clients in Bristol. We only have brothers and sisters, and we will be able to share that with all our brothers and sisters and share meals together, and it will be beautiful. And thank you guys for making that happen. Amen. Yeah, thank you all for your generosity, uh, Paoli. I want to say, um, after church is over, I want to invite you to stick around and help Gary and I load all that stuff into cars. Because um, that's how it's going to get to Bristol. So uh, if you um, are able-bodied and you have a few minutes to stick around and help us, we'd be grateful for your help. Um, now let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for the vision for ministry that you gave Gary and Susan. Um, the vision of a church that is a light to the town of Bristol. Um, that reaches out with the love of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the ways that um, redemption's been able to do that for 12 years. We thank you for their um, holy persistence that's kept them going through a lot of um, Elijah moments. And we thank you, Lord, for the fruit that you've allowed them to see for the revitalization that's taking place there. God, we give you thanks that we can partner with Gary and Susan and with Redemption. We give you thanks um, for the meals that they host, for the homeless men and women who will be called not a client or a problem, but a brother and a sister and a friend. We pray, Lord, that our gifts would supply redemption's need and that it would provide occasions for your spirit to be at work to really change lives. Lord God, we ask your blessing on Gary and Susan and the whole redemption community. We pray, Lord, that you would direct them, bless them, guide them, Continue to give them your vision for what is next. Lord God, we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Gary, if you'd be willing to just offer us sure. all a word of blessing as we go. 
Wherever you go this week, wherever you are, know that you are not alone, that God is in it with you, and that he will walk with you in all things. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.